Please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 9. Go to John chapter 9. Um, as we're in a, a sermon series, a brief sermon series, seven weeks long, called uh, The I Am. Uh, the I Am. We'll be covering the I Am statements of Jesus that are found only in the Gospel of John. My subtitle is Jesus in His Own Words. So we want to hopefully, during this series, see and hear Jesus' own words about Himself with greater clarity and understanding. And as, as I've said each week at the beginning of this service, there are two main things you have to understand as you come to these I Am statements of Jesus. The first is that in Exodus chapter, thir- in Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, and Moses asked, who should I say has sent me to, re- to deliver my people from Pharaoh? God says, I am who I am. This is my name for all generations, that God is the great I am. And so when Jesus takes the the Greek form of this on his own lips, he is making a statement about his absolute identity as the Son of God in the flesh, okay? He is claiming to be the same one who is speaking in the Exodus, that I am the rock, I am the bread, I am the one who led you by a pillar of cloud um, by, by day and a pillar of fire by night. The second item of consideration is how do we come to terms with Jesus' own absolute statements? Um, This brings us face to face with who Jesus is. And like I've said at the beginning, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then what are we doing here? This is all pointless and useless. Um, But if we have to come to terms, either Jesus is, as C.S. Lewis said, he's either a lunatic, he's a crazy madman, that's somebody we shouldn't follow, or he's a liar and a deceiver on the, on the grandest scales of all of history, or he really is Lord. And so our, our, what we want to do is look at what Jesus has said and hopefully come to the same conclusion that C.S. Lewis and millions of others have, and that is Jesus really is the Son of God and the Messiah. Now, last, the, the first week we looked at Jesus' statement that I am the bread of life. Last week we looked at Jesus stating that I am the light of the world that he said at the feast And today we're going to look at what Jesus says in John 9 and 10, where he says, I am the door of the sheep. And as usual, everyone's going to miss it. Whether that's Nicodemus in John 3, who thinks you need to be physically born again and crawl back into your mother's womb, or the woman at the well in John 4, who thinks Jesus is going to give her some kind of water so she doesn't have to come to the well anymore. Or as the other religious leaders have missed it as well, thinking Jesus is really asking you to eat his physical body as a cannibal. And so here, they're going to miss it as well. So um, right now, we're going to find Jesus here at the Feast of Dedication, which happens in December, also called Hanukkah. And we know this from chapter 10, verses 20, chapter 10, verse 22. But I want, we're going to begin in chapter 9, which is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible, because it is, it is humorous. It is, it is, it is humorous and sad, but the humor also covers the horror of what's actually happening here in the text. Okay? So, John chapter 9, I want to begin with first the contrast of faith and unbelief. The contrast of faith and unbelief. So let's begin, and let's just read through chapter 9 together, and I'll take very brief breaks, but this is the context, okay? And so, um, this is, notice this, the text begins with simple faith. Look, it says here, it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
And Jesus answered, It was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he's not blind because of his own sin or because of his parents. This is all part of God's sovereign purpose for this man's disability. Okay? There's a sermon in that all by itself. And he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. He, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Simple faith. Go and wash. Right? This man knows nothing about Jesus but he's willing by simple faith to go to the pool and wash. I mean, what's there to lose? What's there to lose? This man's been blind for 30-something years. Okay? And then notice the, what happens. This leads to a confused crowd. People are now confused. Look at verses 8 through 12. It says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it, It's him. Others said, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. Like, hey, I'm Bob. Yeah, I'm Bob. I've been, at the, I've, been at the, I've been here for a long time. You know who I am. Quit playing dumb. I'm Bob. All right? He says, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. Remember, he doesn't know. He's never seen Jesus. <laughs> He's never seen Jesus. He was blind. Jesus said, go wash. And then the guy goes and washes, and now he can see, but Jesus didn't go with him, and he has, he's never seen anybody before, right? So where is he? <laughs> yeah, like I know. This is the first time I've laid eyes on you, Jeff. Why haven't you been nice to me at the gate? You pass by all the time. You've been stingy, okay? So this is what's happening here, okay? So the, the crowd is very confused. Okay, and this leads to conflicted religious leaders. Okay, look at verses 13 through 17. He says, they brought him to the Pharisees, because they're going to solve the problem and the mystery. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day, that's important, when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again, again, they, they just keep asking this guy, again asked him how he had received his sight. And the story keeps getting shorter. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. That's what happened, okay? Just the facts, ma'am. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, all right, let me make sure, I don't want to go too far here. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. I mean, right? He's a prophet. So you had a confused crowd, right? There, there's this mixture of faith and unbelief. And he, all we know now is, well, there was this man, Jesus, who anointed my eyes. And now you have conflicted Pharisees who have an irrefutable miracle, right? This is irrefutable. You got a guy and his neighbors who know this is the guy. He can now see and he says, Jesus, well, Jesus might not just be some random man. He might also be a prophet, but I'm not really sure. But, you know, that's what happened. 
And then notice here, hardening unbelief. Like, there's a choice to be made here about the truth in front of them. But they become, the Pharisees become hardened in their unbelief. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. That's, that's unbelief right there. And he says, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents, right, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. I mean, unless the guy's been lying to them for 30-something years. Like, he's a one-year-old pretending to be blind, and he's really good. I mean, some of your kids think they're, you know, they're giraffes. They give it up after about an hour. This guy's been at it for 30 years, okay? Right? He's pretending to be blind for 30 years. I mean, this is a man committed to his craft, all right? All right, so, again, a lot of humor here. He says, but, but, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, here's an important aside. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed. If anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So there's a conspiracy, right? If you say Jesus is the Christ, you're right out of the church. You're right out. No more for you, right? So, that's right. So, this is hardening unbelief. But now look that we have growing faith. Hardening unbelief for the Pharisees, but growing faith and courage in this guy. He says, so for the second time, right? This guy's getting tired of the story. He's like, this isn't worth it. I might as well stay blind if y'all are going to harass me. And look, he says, so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, wouldn't even know his name, and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. That is very simple faith. That's growing, encouraging, flourishing faith. He says, They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he's aggravated. He says, he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Guys, that's one of the funniest lines in all the New Testament. This guy's chiding the Pharisees. Oh, you want to be his disciples? I'll tell you again. Okay? And they reviled him. So notice that he, this guy has a growing conviction about truth and experience. He's like, I don't care what you say. I don't care what they think. I don't care that my parents are afraid. Jesus opened my eyes. I can now see, and there's nothing you can do about it. All right? But notice here it becomes that the Pharisees' unbelief becomes hostile. Look there in verses 28 and 30. It says, and they reviled him. That means they hated him. They despised him. It says, they despised him, saying, you are his disciple. That's funny, right? This guy's not following Jesus. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He's never laid eyes on Jesus. Just, all right, this, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. That is super hostile. Listen, here, here's the truth. Once you refuse to believe the truth in front of you, the only thing you can do is harden your heart to it 
and become hostile towards it. That's the only option you have. That means you have to hate the truth. If you do not embrace the truth and love the truth, you will hate and despise the truth. And that's exactly what's happening. Okay? So then notice it becomes faith under fire. He says, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He's not right about that, but that's what he thinks. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And that is absolutely true. And then they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Again, that goes back to how this conversation began. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what is Jesus' position? Neither of them. This man's not born blind because he sinned. He's not born blind because his parents sinned. He's born blind because of the sovereign purposes of God. But what do the Pharisees say? Why is he born, sin? Why is he born blind? Because he was born into utter sin. Right? And he says, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They throw him out of the synagogue. But now listen, this moves to explicit faith. Look what it says there. It says, and Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Just let that sink into your head for a second. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And then look, oh man, that's, that's incredible. So you have this, this contrast of faith and unbelief, and then you have, secondly, the judgment of the religious leaders. This is what's happening in verses 39 to 40. I read too far ahead. Look at verses 39 and 40, what Jesus says. This is judgment. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, let me just break this down quickly. First, notice Jesus' claim in verse 39. This is important. Jesus says he came with a purpose. His purpose is that he will either give light and sight, spiritual light and sight, and here in this case physical sight, or he will create hardness and darkness. This is evident all over the Gospel of John, just, like we've, just as we've seen in this episode with the blind man and the religious leaders. You cannot deny truth without consequences to your head, heart, and soul. If you deny truth that's right in front of you, there will be consequences to your head, your heart, and your soul. Okay, But second, notice some of those consequences of unbelief right there in, verse, in this verse. Jesus says that the Pharisees are the ones who are blind. He says they're really blind. They can't see what is right in front of them in the midst of a miracle. They have a man who can see. They have his, they have his friends and neighbors who have watched him for 30-something years. They have his parents who testify to the truth of what's happened, and they will not accept it even though they can't deny it. 
That is by definition hardness of heart and blindness. Now, let me just say here, it should be very clear here to the reader that miracles do not create faith in people. Because if it did, would there be unbelief amongst the Pharisees? No. Some of you here are saying, if Jesus would show me a miracle, I would believe. It's not true. It's just absolutely not true. Miracles do not create faith in people. Actually, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that miracles will be used as further condemnation for those who stay in their unbelief. The Bible teaches that miracles will be used for further judgment for those who refuse to believe. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, that's a city, woe to you, Bethsaida. He says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Why? Because they didn't, see the, they didn't have any miracles among them. But they did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, and they refused to believe. And then Jesus goes on to you, and to you, Capernaum. That's, a, where, it's, that's where Jesus worked in miracles in Galilee. He says, in you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, that city would have remained unto this day. He says, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Think about the sovereignty of God there. God says, had I went into Sodom and done miracles, they would have repented. And God says, I didn't send any miracles because they were going to be under judgment too. And he says right here, Jesus says, this is, this is judgment. This is judgment. Now third, notice, what, notice that Jesus says that these Pharisees, they will be condemned based on their own judgment. He says that because they claim to see, they will be judged on that claim. Do you see what Jesus' words were right there? You see what he says to them? Look what he says. He says, the Pharisees answered, said, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What this means is that Jesus will allow them to condemn themselves by their own standards. Jesus allows them to condemn themselves by their own standards. That's the same concept Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In Matthew 7, when Jesus says the most out-of-context verse in all the Bible, that says, judge not lest you be judged, right? Everybody can quote that part, but you know what the rest of the verse says? Because with the judgment you use, it will be measured again unto you. So, you're supposed to judge rightly, because whatever standard you use will be the standard used against you. And Jesus says, the very standard you Pharisees are using is the very standard I'm going to use against you. You claim to see and you're blind. And I'm going to judge you based on that claim. Okay? So the Pharisees will receive the same treatment they've given others. Now, fourth, here we go, got to move quickly. Jesus pronounces God's judgment here as a fulfillment of Ezekiel, of Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34... God pronounces judgment on Israel's leaders who were supposed to rightly shepherd God's people. They were supposed to shepherd God's people in a certain way. Let me, let's go back to chapter 10, verse, verses 1 through 6. I've got to read the right part here. All right. Chapter 10, 1 through 6. This is where Jesus goes after, after pronouncing this judgment. Jesus then pronounces further judgment. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, 
but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them out on his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, and they did not understand what he was saying. Okay, this is all a picture of Ezekiel 34, where again, God's Israel's leaders were called to shepherd Israel with mercy and righteousness and justice and compassion. But instead, what they do is they abuse the sheep and mistreat the sheep and extort the sheep and use the sheep for their own power and authority and their own positions. And God says, you're, instead of feeding my sheep, you're feeding my, yourself on my sheep. They're not leading out of, a heart of, out of God's heart for his people, but out of their own desires. And Jesus is saying here that Ezekiel was speaking about you, Pharisees. Jesus was speaking about you. You're doing the same things right now in regards to this blind man. This blind man has just received grace and compassion. You know what you should do? The religious leader should be the one rejoicing in God's mercy and celebrating God's power at work in their midst. But what do they do? Instead, they throw him out of the synagogue and they castigate him publicly in front of everyone, including his parents. I want you to put yourself in this position. Think about the incredible injustice being done in this very moment. Have you thought about that? What have these parents been praying for for their son for 30-something years? Oh, that my kid could see. Oh, that my little boy, that God would hear my prayer and open his eyes. Oh, that he wouldn't have to sit out here. And then it happens. This man Jesus comes and opens his eyes. And the very next thing that happens is the religious leaders castigate him, publicly humiliate him, and abuse him in front of everybody. Think about that. And Jesus says, that is the problem. In light of all of this, Jesus says these religious leaders are robbers and thieves of God's flock. Now what's also important is that in Ezekiel, God promises to send a true shepherd who's going to lead people rightly. And we're going to talk about that next week. And that's where this all leads to Jesus' statement in verses 7 through 10. I am the door of the sheep. Look what he says in verses 7 through 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here is Jesus' I am statement on the heels of this long story. It is both an absolute condemnation of the religious leaders and an absolute claim to Jesus' place as the Son of God and Messiah. Now here's what this means that we can gather from this text. So if you're paying attention, this is what Jesus says. When he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. Everybody else is robbers and thieves. I am the door. If you enter by me, you will come in and find pasture. You will be saved. This is what this means. First, 
it means that Jesus is the exclusive entrance of the sheep. Jesus is the exclusive entrance of the sheep. Now, shepherding, of course, was a very common part of Israel's life and culture. Shepherds would place their sheep together in a pen at night, right? There would only be one gate into this pen, and the shepherd or another person hired for security, the gatekeeper, would guard the gate or the door to the sheepfold. Sometimes when the sheep, sometimes those sheep would be herded into caves. I've been in one of those caves in Bethlehem a year ago this week. Got in a cave with the markings of shepherds in Bethlehem on a hillside. So that sometimes the sheep would be gathered and herded into caves. There wouldn't be a gate. And the shepherd himself would stand as a door at the, gate, at the, at the, at the mouth of the cave. Nothing gets in or out without going through the shepherd. What Jesus is saying here is that he himself is the door that the sheep must enter through. All sheep must come through Jesus. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you must enter through the narrow gate. Paul says in Ephesians 2.18 that we have access in one spirit to the Father through him. He's the only access, the only gate, the only door. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you that read famous Christian books, one of my favorite is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress tells a story about, um, about this man named Christian, right, who's preached to by this man named Christ, uh, by Evangelist. And so Evangelist says, you must go up this hill and enter at the gate, and the gate will lead you away from destruction to the celestial city, and you'll find relief from this giant burden that's on your back. And so when Christian gets to the gate, he knocks, and he's nervous that they're not going to let him in. He's like, I'm this poor, decrepit sinner, and so he knocks at the gate and says, I'm a sinner, and the evangelist told me if I come to the gate, you'll let me in. And what happens is, the gate immediately opens, and he's granted entrance without any hesitation. And the story continues that he's given a scroll So at the gate, this guy gives him a scroll, and it says, this scroll will grant you entrance into the celestial city. It's like a a pardon. This lets you into the city. And on that journey, though, Christian meets two people. One is named Formalist, and the other Hypocrisy. And they jumped the fence as though they could get to heaven on their good deeds. Formalist is this religious guy. And hypocrite also is this very outwardly religious guy. The problem is they didn't come through the door. They didn't come through the gate. So guess what they don't have? They don't have a scroll. They came in by a different way. They thought their own good deeds and their outward religiosity would save them. But they didn't come through Christ. And then at the end of the journey, right before Christian goes into the celestial city... He meets this other character named Ignorance. And he's staring at the city, but he can't go in either. The answer is because he does not have a scroll. He didn't enter in by the gate. Jesus is the gate and the door that must be entered through. There's no other way. That's what Jesus says. I am the exclusive entrance to the sheep. I'm the exclusive entrance for the sheep. Let me say that correctly. I am the exclusive entrance for the sheep. Sheep. But Jesus is also the door to the sheep. It's both are true. He's the entrance for the sheep, and he's the only way to get to the sheep. 
What that means is Jesus is the one providing safety and protection for the sheep. Nothing can get to the sheep without coming through the door of Jesus. I love old movies. I love especially, well, y'all know I love Lord of the Rings movies, but if you go back and you watch any medieval movie about castles and chivalry and knights and, 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 and people fighting with swords, and you know, when you get to a castle, a giant medieval castle, there's something in the middle of each castle, in the, in the, main, in the main courtyard, it's called the keep. And the keep is the last fortification of the entire um, castle. And so if the enemy breaches the walls or break down the gate, everybody would, everybody would run into the keep. And what the keep was, was this one giant castle fortress where the, it was a very narrow, it was usually surrounded by some kind of exterior wall or moat. And there was one narrow passage where it didn't matter how big the army was, guess what? They had to go one at a time up that passageway to fight everybody inside. You couldn't go around it. You couldn't go over it. The only way to get in it was to go through this very, very narrow passage. And there the best soldiers would stand, and they wouldn't have to fight one against 500. You know how they fight? One against one. One against one. The only way to get to the innocent people inside inside the keep was to come through that one door. That's the same picture here of Jesus. The only way you can get to my people, you can't go around me. You have to get to my people through me. You can't get to my sheep unless you come through me. Now let me tell you, this means that nothing comes into your life as a believer. Nothing comes into your life as a believer that does not come through Jesus first. That's the greatest news I could give you. Nothing in your life Nothing in your life comes to you without first coming through Jesus. Whatever it is will ultimately serve, uh, serve Jesus' purposes for our good and His glory. That's the good and the bad. That's cancer. That's disease. That's death. It comes through Jesus first. The good and the bad. Think Joseph here. Think the story of Joseph. Think the story of Job. Think of David. But most of all, think of the cross. Think of the cross. Now, as I conclude, having, having said that Jesus is the door, he makes two incredible eternity-shaping promises in verse 9. That's where we'll end. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So here it is. First, if you enter by Christ, you will be saved. Not maybe, not ifs, not it's a possibility. If you enter by Jesus, the promise is you will be saved. That's the whole point of John's gospel. Believe and be saved. Receive Christ and be saved. Look on Christ the Savior and be saved. Drink of Him as living water and be saved. Take Him as the bread of life and be saved. See Him as light and life and be saved. See Him as the only door to the Father and be saved. Second, Jesus says if you enter by Him, you will go in and out and find pasture. You will enjoy the fellowship of Christ. 
You will enjoy the leadership of Christ, the communion of Christ. You will have the protection of Christ and the nourishment of Christ by His Spirit and by His Word. And you will have the provision of Christ as your shepherd. Now as I conclude, let me say here to God's people, it's not our job to build fences around God's sheep. That's not my job as a pastor. I'm not going to build fences around any of you. It's not our job to build fences and go, well, we're going to try to keep the wolves out. Well, you know what happens when you build fences? You fence the wolves in. That's what happens. You fence the wolves in with the sheep. Fences aren't what keep the sheep safe or the wolves out. That's what the door is for. That's what the shepherd is for. It's our job, it's my job, it's your job to encourage the sheep to stay close to the shepherd. Now here's my question as I close. Have you come through the door? Through the door. Listen, there are many of you that are right on the threshold. You come right to the threshold, you can see in, but you've never stepped through the door. That is faith. That is repentance and faith. Listen, being near the door, being looking through the door is not going to be enough. You have to enter through the door. You have to go through it into fellowship with Christ by faith. Have you come through the door? Have you entered by the narrow gate? Not have you seen it. Not do you know what the gate is or who the gate is. Is Jesus everything? This morning we'll have a time of invitation. If you don't know Jesus, come to Him as the door. If you are a believer, then are you seeking Jesus as everything? As your nourishment, as your protection? Are you trusting Him as the good shepherd of the sheep? Father, would you take this word, would you impress it upon our hearts, and may Jesus be glorified. We pray this in His name. Amen.